You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, episode 25, The Invasion of Russia, part two. Welcome back, J. David Markham. It's been over a month since we did part one due to your travels and my travels. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, Cameron, and, and, and it has been over a month, and I deeply regret that, and I appreciate the the forbearance, tolerance, and patience of, of, of our faithful listeners. Uh, but we do have uh, pretty good reasons. Uh, you, you had to go visit some family in the summer, which, which is what we, we do. Although, come to think of it, I'm not so sure it's summer where you are. Uh, but, it is, but it is summer here. Uh, and I went to a conference in Poland uh, for a week, a Napoleonic conference, and then a... Uh, a week uh, traveling in eastern Germany, uh, uh, Berlin and Dresden, uh, Erfurt, uh, Leipzig, uh, uh, Wittenberg, and 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 uh, Eis, uh, Eisenach, uh, following a little bit of Napoleon, a little bit of uh, of, of Martin Luther, and and a lot of uh, art museums, and had a wonderful time. Eastern Germany is a wonderful place to visit, and I've got to tell you that that. My friend Poland that I worked with on this conference did a wonderful job, uh, and, and, and I have nothing but the highest of praise for the program that, that they uh, put together uh, for the International Napoleonic Society, and uh, I really uh, appreciate the, the effort that they made. Uh, next year, I'll give you just a few heads up here. Uh, first of all, uh, coming up in October, and wouldn't you know, I forgot to get the the exact date in front of me, but we'll post it, uh, is the the uh, Napoleonic Historical Society Conference in Chicago, uh, which I think a lot of our uh, listeners will want to uh, go to. Uh, and then next summer, there's going to be almost certainly a, a wonderful conference, uh, International Napoleonic Society Conference in uh, uh, Corsica, the birth island, of course, of Napoleon, and it'll include a day trip to, or maybe even an overnight trip to Elba, which is a very close island, although ironically difficult to get to from Corsica. Uh, of course, Elba was where Napoleon was first uh, sent into exile as emperor of Elba. Uh, that'll be wonderful. And then a year after that, uh, so two years from now, we're going to be doing one, it looks like, in Acre uh, in Israel, or Akko, uh, and uh, uh, that, of course, is a city with great Napoleonic implications. So for those of you who like to travel and would like to attend uh, these things, uh, there's just all sorts of uh, really extraordinary uh, extraordinary opportunities uh, coming up, and, and I urge you to take advantage of them. Now, the last time... Um we finished the show with Napoleon knee-deep in Russia and about to face off with Kutasov against Kutasov. 
at a little place called Borodino. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, Napoleon is, uh, is, is, is sitting, uh, wondering what to do in Smolensk. He, he's taken Smolensk, but you'll recall that once again, uh, indecision and delay on Napoleon's part, uh, less than thoroughly aggressive action on the part of, of some of Napoleon's subordinates, allowed the, 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 the twin armies uh, of, of Russia uh, to, to escape. And so uh, Napoleon was left with, you know, a really serious uh, decision to make. And we talked about this last time, but it's, it's worthwhile, you know, sort of thinking about it again. Uh, he, he controls Smolensk. A good portion of the city uh, had been burned, but it's possible that that he could have stayed uh, in Smolensk, uh, consolidated his troops, got reinforcements, got some more horses, uh, cranked up his his propaganda machine about how he had, you know, conquered so much Russian uh, territory, which, by the way, was was true. Uh, he could have declared Poland independent. Uh, which, of course, was the big sticking point with uh, Tsar Alexander. And this would have been pretty much thumbing his nose to Alexander and saying, here, take that, you so-and-so. Uh, that would have certainly uh, brought him even greater loyalty uh, by, by the Polish people and, of course, the Polish army, although it does have to be said that the Poles were among the most loyal of, of Napoleon's uh, uh, supporters uh, throughout all of this. Uh, and then maybe in the spring, uh, after staying either in Smolensk or even going back to Vidbisk, uh, he, he, he could continue his operations against uh, whatever uh, the Russians uh, chose to put forward. On, on the other hand, as we suggested last time, if you, if you sit around for the winter, your soldiers lose a certain amount of their edge. Uh, there's a lot more time for conspiratorial activities back in Paris, or for that matter, in Berlin and in Vienna, uh, where he's he's got these allies who may or may not be, you know, totally pleased with the situation. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for continuing the action. Now you have to remember, and and we're of course we're in the situation. Uh, unlike those people who have uh, managed to avoid hearing, you know, how the the last Harry Potter uh, saga ends, we're in the position of all knowing how this ends, and we know what a disaster is going to to come of it. But he doesn't know that. He doesn't have the advantage of hindsight. In some articles I've written, I've argued that perhaps he should have had a little better idea about what was coming. But nevertheless, he still believes, this is Napoleon, Napoleon still believes that he can force a major battle and that that will force Tsar Alexander to come to terms. So Napoleon decides to follow the Russian army down the road toward Moscow. And Napoleon was right in the first half of that assumption. Clearly, Moscow, which 
I, I call it the, the holy city of Moscow. A lot of folks today, of course, know that Moscow was the capital of the Russian Federation. And the capitals in the, in the Kremlin and so on has been for a long time. It was not the capital of Russia at the time of this confrontation. St. Petersburg was the capital, and that's where Tsar Alexander, his family, and his court were. But Moscow had a tremendous uh, emotional and religious connotation for uh, the Russian people. And Napoleon was correct when he assumed that the Tsar dared not allow the French to take Moscow, the holy city of Moscow, without some kind of a fight. And indeed, Tsar Alexander sent to take charge of, of his armies, his twin armies, which are now uh, combined and, and retu retreating toward Moscow. He sent a fairly controversial uh, military leader, Field Marshal Prince Mikhail Kutuzov, uh, who was going to take uh, control of the two Russian armies. And his orders were very simple. Stop the French from taking Moscow. The Kutuzov decided to make his stand near uh, the town of Borodino, uh, somewhere around 70 miles from Moscow. It's not a very long uh, drive at all to go uh, from, from Moscow to to, to the battlefield, uh, and uh, Kutuzov has somewhere around 154,000 men, about 624 cannon. They have found a fairly defensible area, which they very, very quickly move to, to make even more defensible with a series of redoubts and so on, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit. Napoleon's down to, I suppose, around 130,000 men and 600 cannon. So he really has something of a disadvantage now. Now, it's not like he's lost that many people in combat. We need to always keep in mind a, a few aspects of, of, the, of, of the, the question of numbers in a campaign like this. First of all, he starts out with five or 600,000 men. He cannot take all of those with him all the way to Moscow or wherever. He has to protect his lines of communication. So he's left soldiers stationed, significant numbers of soldiers stationed, all the way along the line to protect his lines of communication, to cover uh, his retreat, to make sure he's not uh, surrounded, outflanked by some Russian armies coming behind him. Moreover, he sent armies to the north and to the south uh, to make sure he's not outflanked in that way as well. So he's got armies behind him to his left flank and to his right flank. Those are very, very important uh, formations. It's absolutely critical that he has those. But of course, obviously, it reduces the number of people he has in his army of, of the center, if you will, the one he's commanding. He's also had a, 
some soldiers lost in, in combat. And he's had a fair number, by the way, lost in combat or, or died from the heat. I mentioned last time there was a, a lot of a, a problem with that. He's also had a fair number of desertions, not so much from the French, but from some of the other uh, nationalities that are represented in this huge army with, what did I say, 24 different nationalities, something along that line. A number of those folks were not completely motivated like the French soldiers were, perfectly understandably, and so a number of them uh, have have deserted. All right, so so you know you put all that together, and you've got more or less parity, with a little bit of an edge to to the Russians. So Napoleon moves toward Borotino, uh, and uh, the, the the Russians are are waiting. Uh, for them. And, and by the way, I, I, while I think of it, I want to tell you and tell our listeners, a lot of folks are familiar with the battlefield at Waterloo. Many of our listeners may very well have gone to, to see Waterloo. It's, it's very conveniently located uh, in, in Belgium, not too far from Brussels, about 12 miles if I recall. But I have to tell you that one of the finest and best preserved battlefields that you will see anywhere in the world, certainly of the Napoleonic period, is the battlefield at Borodino. Katusov, after it was all over, wrote to the Tsar and said, listen, Tsar, this battlefield, even though, as Will mentioned, it was technically a French victory, something I have to repeatedly remind my Russian friends of, this battlefield is so important that it needs to be preserved. And it was preserved. And it was preserved pretty much in its entirety. Many of the original buildings are there. The Great Redoubt is there. The Three Arrows, which we'll talk about, are there. All of the things that, that you and I will talk about in our discussion of the Battle of Borodino, still exist. You can walk on them. You can see where Marshal Ney would have been or, or where Napoleon would have been, where Kutuzov sat. All of this stuff is there. Okay. And it's, it's wonderful, regardless of whose side you're on, to go and see this. Plus, there's a whole, whole bunch of monuments, including a monument to the French soldiers, a monument to the Russian soldiers, a monument to whoever else. When I was there the first time in 1999, as the first American scholar ever to, to give a, a lecture, present a paper at this biennial conference uh, at Borodino, we, we went to the French monument, and there was a French general there, and there was a, a, a big ceremony laying a wreath for the French soldiers who died. And then we walked down a half a mile or so, to the big monument for the Russian, or maybe we did the Russian first, I don't recall. And there was a bunch of Russian generals, and we laid a wreath at the Russian monument. It was an extraordinary, moving uh, event. And indeed, there were huge religious overtones to it. There was a religious ceremony. Uh, the, the high priests of the, 
the uh, Russian Orthodox Church were there, plus a whole bunch of other religious folks. The separation of church and state is not real big, at least not when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, but the point, and there's also a fabulous museum uh, there, which has a, 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 a great big diorama of, of the battlefield and, you know, push the buttons and here come the lights to show you who was where and when and so on. It's extraordinarily well done. So if you have a chance to get to Moscow and then to take a, 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 a drive out to Borodino, I strongly urge that you do so. And any of our listeners who are serious about doing that, they can contact me and I can, <clears throat> excuse me, I can give you some contact information and so on. Uh, and, and you can use my name to, to say that I, that, that I recommended the, the visit. Uh, because it's, it's really, if you're, if you're into battlefields and the historical implications, it's really, really worth it. Sounds like you're taking a, a glass of your medicine. Um, <clears throat> Indeed I am. <laughs> I've been uh, trying to find a good map to uh, put on the website just to show Borodino's proximity to Moscow. And um, unfortunately, I went to Google Maps and it seemed to have found something, but it's all in Russian. So I can't, <laughs> can't for the life of me work out what's going on. Um, well, ask me about this later and I think I can probably help you with that. All right. Very good. Now, uh, we, we talked last time about uh, a little bit about Kutusov and some of his background. Interestingly, you know, he was very uh, unpopular with the, uh, both the, the Russian nobility and the Russian forces. There, there, there was lots of uh, bad vibes towards the guy, and um, it, it just seemed to uh, be escalating around the time of the battle. I've got some uh, interesting quotes here. There's uh, from Rostopchin, who was the the governor of Moscow, I think. Yes. And uh, he talks about a conversation that he had with Kutuzov, which he described as a curious conversation which reveals all the baseness, the incompetence, and the poltroonery of the commander of our armies. I'm not exactly sure what the definition of poltroonery is, but I'm assuming it's not a compliment. I'm guessing that if you Googled it or, or something, you'd, you'd, you'd find it was less than complimentary, yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, whilst... Well, you know, Katusov was an interesting character. You, you, he's one of the most recognizable images to come out of the Napoleonic period, certainly of the Russians. I mean... Whoever who would recognize Bagration if they if they saw an image of of of, of him or de Tolly or any of the others, maybe even even the Tsar himself, but almost anyone who's you know familiar with general imagery of this era is going to be familiar uh, with uh, Kutuzov. Uh, you know, big, heavy set, uh, bushy haired, uh, uh, eye patch, and 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 so on. Uh, he had a tendency to fall asleep during staff meetings because he was bored uh, with them. Uh, he, he, he was irreverent toward people above him, uh, and, and not everybody appreciated that. A lot, of the, a lot of the aristocrats were not real thrilled with Kutuzov. Kutuzov, on the other hand, did something that the Russians didn't always accomplish, and that is to say Kutuzov tended to win. Uh, and Kutuzov had a great deal of loyalty 
loyalty of his soldiers. He wasn't, in that sense, a, a similar to Napoleon. The, the Russian soldiers were, 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 were very fond of Kutuzov, uh, uh, at, least from, at least from everything I've read. Uh, I don't read Russian. I've read a number of translations of Kutuzov's uh, works, uh, you know, some of, some of his proclamations and orders and so on, and, and, and I've uh, read other material uh, uh, from, from translated works, uh, including by Alexander, Alexander Mikhovaredzi, who's a dear friend of mine, who's done a number of excellent Russian translations. Uh, uh, on, on, on the Russian commanders and so on. But from everything I can tell, uh, you know, he's, uh, he, he's got the, the, the faith and, and support of, of the Russian soldiers, which frankly is all he cares about. So at any rate, you've got Kutuzov against Napoleon uh, around uh, this, this, this area of, of Borodino. And on the 5th of September... Napoleon catches up to the Russians, and the, the action of the day is really pretty good for the French. They, they gain control of the Sheridino uh, Redoubt, which is very, very critical if they're going to move forward. It was a major blockade uh, on the road uh, just to the west, I suppose, of, 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 of the main fortifications or the main stand of the Russians at Borodino, not really fortifications as such. Uh, and uh, uh, the French gained control of that after some very, very heavy fighting. Now, for those of you who don't know, a redoubt, uh, spelled R-E-D-O-U-B-T, uh, is typically a, 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 a hill with... Uh, you know, kind of a rise along the edge of it so you can hide behind it. They put cannons shooting over the top and quite typically a ditch, almost like an old medieval moat around it. It's a pretty good uh, defensive position against both cavalry and infantry. It's, it's, it's obviously not impregnable and, and enough, enough people, enough horses, enough cannon can, can, can overcome it. And, and the French, in fact, do uh, overcome the uh, Chevardito uh, Redoubt, uh, but it uh, it takes a bit of doing, takes the whole day, uh, and on the sixth of September, oddly enough, and you know this happens in war sometimes, both both sides decide to take a break. They decide to to rest their forces. This is. I don't even know who gets the biggest advantage. The French desperately need the the rest because they've been marching more than the more recently at least than the Russians have uh, and, and so they, they gain from it. The Russians on the other hand get another day to sort of add to the fortifications uh, that they have around around Borodino uh, and uh, and so on the the next day the 7th uh, the, the, the action gets really pretty hot and heavy and the French do pretty well. Uh, Prince Eugène, who who you may recall is the the son, the stepson rather of uh, Napoleon, uh, and has been given you know a major command, captures the little village of Borodino, which gives the French an opportunity to get one of the flanks of the Russian position, and Mar 
Marshal Michelnay is able to to take over an area called the Three Arrows. It's a it's a redoubt uh, which is still there today. I, I can send you pictures of of, of my wife surveying uh, this this redoubt, uh, and uh, it's still there. You can you can see how difficult it would have been to take, and Ney is able to to grab control of at least most of it, which pushes the Russians back and, and hems them in uh, a bit. And, and here comes one of the really big decisions Napoleon has to make. And it's a decision that you can, you can argue both sides with almost equal effectiveness. Napoleon has committed most of his forces to the battle. But as he often does, he has held and reserved his heavy shock troops, the Imperial Guard, both the cavalry and, and the, the uh, grenadiers of the Imperial Guard. Now, these are his finest fighters. And they sends an urgent message. Please send me the cavalry. With that cavalry, with the heavy crossiers, followed perhaps by the, the light cavalry, I can overrun this three arrows area completely, decimate the Russian army, snatch a huge percentage of that uh, 624 cannon, and really put the Russians on the run and, 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 and have a a lot of Russian casualties in the process. Now, put yourself in Napoleon's position. If Napoleon sends in the Imperial Guard Cavalry and is successful, as Ney really thought it would be, Napoleon has a tremendous, overwhelming victory. At that stage of the game, the Russians are almost certain to retreat in disarray. The cavalry might chase right up their butts with their bayonets, and that would be the end of the Russian army. On the other hand, if it doesn't go that well, if in fact the Russians are better dug in than Ney says, and if somehow it is the Imperial Guard cavalry that is decimated or greatly damaged, both as to the morale and as to their numbers, then the Grand Armée might very well be done, and with them, the Emperor Napoleon. If they are unable to take this three arrows, and defeat the Russians, if instead their massive reserve cavalry is what gets badly damaged or outright defeated, then Napoleon is screwed, and he knows it. He's thousands of miles from home. He has no chance to replenish his soldiers in anything remotely equating to a reasonable time frame. Not unless he had stayed, you know, a lot further uh, west and, and, you know, sort of hunkered down for the winter. 
winter? Did he have a chance to do that? So it would have been an all-or-nothing gamble. Great success or complete defeat. And Napoleon was simply unwilling uh, to do that. Nevertheless, things ended up still going okay for the French. Napoleon did have a few other units that he could send over to Ney. So ultimately, Ney was able to have at least some success. And the primary battle ends up being fought not over the Three Arrows, but over what was then and is now called the Great Redoubt. The Great Redoubt, which again is still there today, is a massive earthen fortification behind which the Russians had placed huge numbers of cannon and tens of thousands of their soldiers. And to go against that, either as a cavalryman or as an infantryman, a grenadier, must have been unbelievably grim. It's a little bit like, you know, imagining yourself trying to attack one of the old medieval castles with people pouring, you know, arrow fire and hot oil or whatever else, not hot oil, but hot water and stuff uh, down on you. Uh, the Russians loaded their cannon with grape shot, which, as I think we've discussed here before, made these cannon into enormous shotguns. And they just fired round after round of this stuff into the French armies. Now, my friends, it is, it's inconceivable to us, I think, and even to someone like, like, like me who has been in, been in war, and I'm sure many of our other people have been in war, and we have some, some listeners in, in Iraq and, and, and I think Afghanistan who are fired at all the time and who, 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 who have to deal with that issue. Even to them, it must be inconceivable to attack a fortified position like this in an attack formation with that kind of murderous fire coming at you. I, I may be repeating myself here because I think I've talked about this before and quite frankly I'll probably mention it again. But for those of you who have not seen that, that D-Day scene in Saving Private Ryan, it has to have been something like that where the Germans were, were able to pour unbelievable amounts of firepower onto those beaches and yet the Allied forces, the Americans, the Canadians, the French, the British, were able to eventually take those positions because they simply kept coming. And as one veteran of that affair once told me, we put soldiers on that beach faster than they could kill them. And I really think that's what happened at Borodino against the Great Redoubt. The French soldiers just kept coming. And for every one that was killed, two more would appear. And over time, by late afternoon, early evening, the Great Redoubt had fallen to the French. The Russians withdrew. The French turned the Russian cannon that had been left behind around 
pound and fired into the ranks of the retreating Russians. Unfortunately, the French, as we've seen before at Austerlitz, did not choose to pursue with cavalry. I, I will believe to my dying day that if the French had just sucked it up, if Murat and his cavalry had simply pursued the Russian army, they might well have destroyed it as a fighting force. But the reality is that the Russians in the course of the evening and all through the night were able to leave the battlefield relatively unmolested. The, the French consolidated their victory, they organized, they rested. They, of course, had killed a large number of Russians, had a large number of prisoners of the war, but they did not pursue. And this, of course, was a decision that Napoleon made. And I don't know for sure, but I would say of all of the decisions that Napoleon made, the most obvious mistake was, I believe, the, the fact that he did not choose to pursue the Russians. As a result, while Russians, the Russians lost 44,000, the French lost 33,000, give or take, both sides were badly bloodied. The French, of course, were in a much worse position to replace those 33,000 than the Russians were to replace the 44,000. And that 44,000, by the way, included Prince uh, Peter Bagration, who was a fine commander, uh, but who had been uh, uh, wounded and, and died a few days later. And there's any number of monuments to him. But the fact is, Kutuzov did the one thing that Kutuzov wanted to do. Of course, he'd have loved to have outright defeated Napoleon and the French. But if he couldn't do that, the one thing he wanted to do was to save the Russian army as a fighting force. And that he was able to do. And that is a critical, critical thing. And that's why Kutuzov is rightfully one of the great Russian heroes and allied heroes of this period. He didn't defeat Napoleon, but he bloodied Napoleon and he kept the Russian army together so that it was later in a position to give Napoleon fits when he was at uh, Moscow. So although as I again remind my Russian friends, this was a technical victory for Napoleon he, after all, killed a lot more Russians than they killed his soldiers. He controlled the battlefield, uh, which is the classic definition of a victory. The road to the holy city of Moscow was now open, and he could move into Moscow as he did unmolested. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, it was, to a significant extent, a pretty doggone good deal for the Russians as well. Well, uh, I've got um, some 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 notes here on Napoleon's health. Uh, I think we've mentioned a few times wasn't uh, he wasn't in the best state 
for some reason, and uh, he was apparently not not his old self. This is you know we 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 start to see Napoleon, not not the Napoleon of old on the battlefield. Um, in uh, campaigns of Napoleon, uh, David Chandler says. Napoleon was not showing himself to the best advantage on this battlefield. His staff was shocked to find him listless and apathetic, and he made no attempt throughout the day to go forward and see for himself. Instead, he mooned around in his Shiverdino command post, listening to reports and ceaselessly demanding the rechecking of the news he received. Ill health and a growing weariness were taking their toll with a vengeance. Several years earlier, he had asserted, We have only a certain time for war. And, you know, listeners will remember from earlier episodes, Napoleon was always out surveying on the front lines with his trusty little telescope and was out there surveying the land, the lie of the land, the lie of the enemy, the lie of his own troops for himself. He left nothing to chance. He was a stickler for detail. But uh, doesn't seem to be the, the same guy anymore. Do you think it was ill health? Do you think he just was more confident in his uh, ability to call the lie of the land. I mean, what do you think was the problem, David? Well, that's a very, very good question, Cameron. And and like like most good questions, the the answer is not particularly self-evident. And 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 that includes uh, uh, you know me being unable to come up with a, a an absolutely certain thing. There's a number of theories. Uh, the the theory that I buy the most is that, and you, you alluded to this, that, that he was so confident that he would crush the Russians, who he didn't really respect a great deal as, 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 as a fighting force. I, I really don't think that he believed that the Russian army could, could stand up to the French army. So if you're fighting a force that you really think is inferior, uh, then... then uh, uh, you don't have to worry so much about it. He also, I, I really think, believed that it wouldn't take very much of a victory on his part uh, to, to bring Tsar Alexander to terms all the way down the line with every skirmish, with the conquering of every square inch of Russian territory. Napoleon was convinced that Tsar Alexander would realize the error of his ways, sue for peace, become an ally, and these very soldiers that he was now fighting would become great allies of the Grand Armée. So, you know, with that approach, with that deeply held belief, combination of they're not that good to begin with and they're going to be on our side sooner enough anyway, you know, maybe that's what was going on. There are some who believe, and I'm not positive. I, I think my, my, my good friend Ben Weider uh, believes this may be a possibility, <coughs> that Napoleon had been poisoned and that the poison had, had made him ill. And if not poison, that Napoleon was simply not in very good health and, and as a result uh, uh, wasn't really up to par. I don't know. I can't really comment on, on the poisoning uh, possibility because, in all honesty, I've not looked into it that carefully. I'm, I'm a little skeptical, but, but my friend Ben Weeder has, 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 has done some very good research in a lot of areas on Napoleon, and, and I suppose that's a possibility to be considered. Uh, 
was he other other than that in good or bad health? Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, it's just really hard to say. But but whatever the reason, uh, Cameron, you're absolutely right. He didn't take as personally aggressive a stance in this campaign as as he did in other campaigns. And it's not just Borodino. It's true in Moscow. It's true in the earlier part that we've already discussed. I've got just to sort of uh, flesh out how gruesome the result of this battle was. This is from um, Adam Zamoyski's book on, on the Moscow campaign, the Russian campaign. And, Talking about Napoleon going to survey the uh, battlefield after the the cease of fighting. It says he rode down the slope from which he had been watching the action all day. At the bottom he found the ground covered in spent musket balls and grape shot, lying as thick as hailstones after a storm. As his horse picked its way between the debris of men, horses and equipment, he saw what one general called the most disgusting sight he had ever seen. Since most of the carnage had been performed by artillery fire, the ground was covered in mangled corpses with exposed entrails and severed limbs. Wounded men struggled to free themselves from under dead men and horses or dragged themselves in the direction of some perceived succour. Wounded horses crushed them as they themselves attempted to get to their feet. One could see some which, horribly disemboweled, nevertheless kept standing, their heads hung low, drenching the soil with their blood or hobbling painfully in search of some pasta, Pasta? Pasture. Dragged, they probably would like some pasta as well. Dragged beneath them shreds of harness, sagging intestines or a fractured member, or else lying flat on their sides, lifting their heads from time to time to gaze on their gaping wounds, recalled an appalled Belgian lancer. The Rayevsky Redoubt presented a gruesome sight. The redoubt in the area around it offered an aspect which exceeded the worst horrors one could ever dream of, according to an officer of the Legion of the Vistula. The approaches, the ditches and the earthwork itself had disappeared under a mound of dead and dying, of an average depth of six to eight men heaped upon, heaped one upon the other. I mean, it's just unbelievably gruesome to, to imagine what these battlefields in the days of cannonballs looked like. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely terrible. The, the, the writer uh, Stendhal, who a who, uh, very, very well-known... Uh, a French uh, writer of the period whose whose life was intertwined with uh, with Napoleon uh, became absolutely disillusioned. You know, he had all been in favor of glory, and he had agreed to go on this campaign as a chance to to achieve glory. But but he uh, he he wrote uh, uh, a letter to his sister, I think. Uh, he says, uh, uh, my own happiness at being here is not great. How a man changes. My old thirst for new sights has been entirely quenched. In this ocean of barbarity, there is not a sound that finds an echo in my soul. You know, I mean, that's, and that's that Stendhal writing, of course. It's, 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 it's absolutely grim. And by the way, we'll talk about it again because... These poor guys who are alive are fated to return, as, as we'll discuss, by the same route. And they're going to come to this battlefield a few weeks later 
And all these bloated bodies are still going to be there, making making it, you know, even grimmer than what you're describing now. It's it's absolutely stunning. And I think I've talked about this before, but you know, this is what's it been? Almost two years that we've been working on this. It it seems like it. Uh, those people who believe in the glory of war, you know, the, the, the artistry of, of especially 19th century warfare, you know, the grand charges of the, of the cavalry, the heavy crossiers and so on, uh, you know, all of that looks so marvelous. But, of course, the artists typically don't paint what it looks like after a battle or even during a battle. You know, you look at that kind of imagery and you think about, you know, you, you see in a movie the, the grand batteries of cannon firing, you know, 500 cannon firing away. And that looks so glorious until you realize what the point of it is and what it would be like to be on the receiving end where a cannonball lands in front of you and you see it bounce just a split second before it takes off your head or cuts you in half. You know, that, that's, that's the side of warfare that we typically don't emphasize and don't see. But quotes like what you've read and what Stendhal reported on and what other writers of the time said, you know, this, this was not glory. This was, this was not what the great artists of the day would have you believe. Now, of course, as you said, the battle wasn't really a, a victory for either side, although technically it was a victory for Napoleon, but, but not the kind that he had expected. But Kutuzov decided to declare it a victory and uh, sent... Uh, a, a notice uh, to Alexander saying that he had beaten Napoleon. And I, I love this story again. This is from Zamoyski. says, Ever aware of the power of propaganda, Kutuzov determined to claim victory for himself. When Colonel Ludwig von Volzogen, one of Barclay's staff officers, delivered his report on the situation on the front line at the cease of fighting, from which it was evident that the Russians had been forced to abandon all their positions and had suffered crippling losses, Kutuzov rounded on him. Where did you invent such nonsense, he spluttered. You must have spent all day getting drunk with some filthy bitch of a subtler woman. I know better than you do how the battle went. The enemy attacks have been repulsed at every point, and tomorrow I shall place myself at the head of the army and we shall chase him off the holy soil of Russia. And basically told Alexander the same thing that he'd won, and there was... Uh, well, sure. He, I have in front of me here... Uh, a, a very long report of Tsar Alexander, uh, uh, or excuse me, a report of Kutuzov to Tsar Alexander in the, Bar the Battle of Borodino. Uh, I'll take a look at it. I, I, I may send it to you to be posted. I won't read you the whole thing. It's seven pages long, and it gets into a great deal of detail. But I'll read you uh, the... The last couple of paragraphs. According to the most reliable information reaching us in the testimony of captured prisoners, the enemy lost and killed and wounded 42 generals, 
many staff and higher rank officers, and over 40,000 men. On our side, the losses extended to 25,000, including 13 generals killed or wounded. And by the way, you know, people complain about Napoleon's bulletins being uh, fabrications. Those numbers are, are, are way off base. The Russians lost a lot more than that. But the last paragraph is, is much more interesting. This day will remain forever a monument to the manliness and outstanding bravery of Russian warriors, where an infantry, cavalry, and artillery men fought desperately. Everyone wished to die on the spot and not yield to the enemy. The French army, under the leadership of Napoleon himself, enjoying superior forces, was not able to overcome the determined spirit of the Russian warrior who was ready to sacrifice eagerly his life in the defense of his country. Well, uh, you can find just a few little details in there that are probably not accurate, although that is the kind of, of proclamation that any great commander, Napoleon, probably Alexander the Great, Kutuzov, Charlemagne, you name it, Caesar, uh, they would have all written stuff like that. Our men were anxious to die on the spot, and of course, we were outnumbered. Now, I gave you the numbers earlier. They had, what was it, around 20,000 more soldiers, 15 or 20 more cannon, and they were dug in to good defensive positions. So to say that they were horribly outnumbered, etc., etc., is nonsense. And did every Russian uh, desire to die on the spot? Well, I r rather doubt it. Nevertheless, it's a pretty good indication of the, the uh, esprit de corps that the Russian army no doubt had. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, a wonderful, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful little bit of military uh, prose. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, um, Chandler actually maybe supports that in a slight respect, where he says, uh, the Russians merit considerable criticism. Indeed, in many respects, they were fortunate to survive the battle. Most of the errors were, of course, the responsibility of their senior generals. The wasteful overextension of the main position and the failure to protect the open left flank have already been mentioned. He says that uh, Kutuzov made as small a personal contribution to the general development of the battle as his famous opponent. What saved the Russian army was the dogged courage and endurance of its rank and file. Their staunch and prolonged resistance in the centre at the first crisis of the day enabled their generals to retrieve their dispositional errors and bring up reinforcements from the disengaged right wing. It is noteworthy that unlike Napoleon, the Russians committed every available unit into action in due course. The Russian infantry clung to the breastworks of their hastily constructed positions to the last breath, and the small number of prisoners that fell into French hands is a further tribute to their sustained valour and morale. Russian brawn, if not Russian brain, had deprived the French of their decisive victory. So obviously the, uh, French, the, the Russian rank and file uh, deserve a, a great deal of, uh, of awe and respect for their courage when they were being served up as a, uh, you know, a, 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 as what just cannon fodder, really to the French, they they do, and this is something I say about all wars, and all battles, and that's that's why I'm I'm really grateful when I go to uh, a battlefield like Borodino and see monuments to the bravery 
and heroism of not just the Russian soldiers who were fighting there in defense of their country, but to the French and other soldiers as well. The soldiers on both sides fought bravely, fought fiercely. Both sides were motivated to win. I think the motivation edge would clearly go to those soldiers who were fighting to defend their homeland, uh, the Russian uh, soldiers in this case. But the French soldiers in particular were devoted to the emperor, devoted to, to doing a, a, a really good job. They fought very bravely. They did, after all, eventually carry the day and force the, the Russian soldiers out. I think Chandler, with, with whom I do not always agree, although when he was alive I counted him as a friend and, and, and enjoyed his company very much and have a very high respect for his scholarship, but I think Chandler is, is, is right on target in this case, when he says it, it wasn't so much Kutusov, although Kutusov is the one who decided where to put the battle, and, and, and certainly he, he inspired his soldiers to some extent. But to a very, very large extent, just like you say, Cameron, it was the, the grit, if you will, the true grit, to use a cliche, of the Russian soldier who was determined to protect Moscow. Whether they each were anxious to die on the spot, well, I doubt that. But were they anxious to fight well and to stop the infidel French from coming forward? You bet your life they were. Uh, and they did a heck of a good job. The, I have nothing but respect for the, and, and admiration for the job that the, that the Russian soldiers uh, did throughout this campaign. Do I wish they'd have done a little worse and Napoleon had been more successful? Well, yeah, I think in the long run, Russia, Europe, and the world would have been better off for it. Uh, but I nevertheless respect tremendously the effort that they made. And I've been, I've been to Borodino twice, given lectures at, at two conferences there. Uh, once as the first American, and then once later on, I took a nice little group of Americans with me, including some of the very top scholars in the field. And uh, it's an honor to have the relationship with those very good people at Borodino. And again, my friend, I, I urge you and, and anyone else listening to, to go to Borodino, see the battlefield. It's one of the best places in the world where, as far as getting a really good feel for what happened, where it happened, and how it happened. And then uh, just to finish up with today, uh, Zamoyski writes... Um, talking about uh, Kutuzov and the state that his army was in at this stage and says that uh, uh, as it could not possibly hope to defend Moscow, whatever Kutuzov may have written, the logical thing for him to do would have been to veer southward and withdraw towards Kaluga. Such a move would have brought him close to his supply base and forced the French to follow him, thus luring them away from Moscow. But if he did this... He would have to fight again or keep retreating, and in either case, the remains of his army would disintegrate. More than anything else, he needed to get Napoleon off his tail, and he could only do that by distracting him with something else. In the only brilliant decision he made during the whole campaign, Kutuzov resolved to sacrifice Moscow in order to save his army. Napoleon is like a torrent which we are still too weak to stem, he explained to Toll. Moscow is the sponge which will suck him in. And with that, 
I think we have to bring this episode to a conclusion, Mr. Markham. Well, we're just over an hour, I suppose, or about an hour. I, that's that's a reasonable place to quit. We'll up when he when 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 Napoleon, in fact, moves uh, toward and into Moscow. Whether or not Moscow was the sponge that Katusov uh, uh, apparently wrote, or uh, Zamosky uh, seems to believe, uh, is is debatable. By the way. Uh, if Napoleon, and we'll talk about all of this in the next episode, which we'll hopefully do another week or two, uh, if Napoleon doesn't stay as long in Moscow as he does, make some decisions more quickly, and gets out of town before the winter hits bad, uh, then Kutusov's not going to look as great as he looks. You know, the Kutusov is going to look really good, and the Russian strategy, such as it was, is going to look really good because Napoleon chooses to sit in Moscow far longer than he should have. Now, were there reasons for him to do that? Is it easy to second-guess somebody? Of course it is. We've done this all through this cast, and, and we'll continue unabashedly to second-guess any number of decisions <laughs> made by any number of people. That, after all, is what we do looking back at the history. You know, that notwithstanding, we do need to recognize that Kutusov giving up Moscow wouldn't have looked so good if Napoleon had stayed there a week and then withdrawn, or if Napoleon had fortified it, stayed there, sent for some quick reinforcements, and and hunkered down for the winter uh, and waited until the spring to carry on the campaign. There's a number of options that could have been done. We'll look at all of them next time. And to our listeners, again, I thank you very much for, for your, your faithfulness and listening to us. I get a lot of emails from you. I try to, to, to catch up on them. There's a few of you I haven't emailed. Uh, one or two of you have sent, you know, sort of grousing comments about, you know, this thing or the other, and that's fine. But most of you have expressed uh, great appreciation for what we do and and I can only tell you that we, we do it because of, of, of you. We do it because there's so many of you who seem to think that this is really a worthwhile thing for us to do. I know that Cameron and I very, very much enjoy it. And I very much enjoy reading your postings and getting your emails. Uh, so please keep them coming. And if you've got a criticism to make or you want to confirm a fact or, or dispute an argument or or simply say how much you're enjoying it. Whatever the case may be, I love to hear from you, and I do my best to get back to you in a reasonable time frame. And again, for those of you who are uh, fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, I haven't commented on you too much for a while, but, but uh, I have uh, heard from a few of you, and I really appreciate hearing from you. I wish all of you the very, very best of, of luck and and success, and and uh, send me an email. Let me know how you guys are doing, and gals are doing too. And Cameron, with that, I will bid you adieu until next time.